0: For those of you who are new here, I'm Chris Dirksen, the teaching pastor, and uh, today will be uh, part seven and the last part in our series on Jesus, and I don't know about you, and it, and it has nothing, it's not the preaching that's doing it, it's the, it's the subject matter, it's Jesus. As I've been studying this thing and preaching this thing, I hope it's been the same with you, but I am just, I am just falling more and more in love with Jesus. Are you, are you doing that too, I hope? And, uh, and so obviously we have not finished everything there is about Jesus. Guess what? We're going to study him for eternity, All right. And so this is the end of this series. There's much, 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 much more material. We will come back to Jesus many, many times. And for those of you who might get a little weird about this, uh, you know, and just remember when Pastor Stefan and Dad and, and, and Pastor Ray, Pastor Dad, uh, Tim and Don and the rest, when they're preaching, just because the series doesn't say Jesus doesn't mean it's not about Jesus. Amen. So, so you, know, you don't need to send us emails. You don't need to get weird about that. Any message that makes you want to apply Jesus' commands to your life, Or submit some area of your life to him, or love him more, whatever is ultimately about Jesus and makes him happy. All right, this just happens to be a series where we are explicitly talking about the person of Jesus. But anyway, uh, we've talked about relationship with Jesus. The last three weeks we've spent talking about the godness, the deity of Jesus. And amen, that is just a powerful truth that Jesus is Yahweh, amen, the Creator God of the universe. And it's good that we spent lots of time talking about that because the cornerstone of Jesus' identity is his godness, his deity. and, and, and that is being lost in our western culture we don 't have the awe for Jesus that we need to have for him, but today now to finish this this message series i can 't finish a series only talking about his deity, his godness. We also have to talk about the fact that Jesus is also fully human he 's fully God fully Yahweh, the creator of the universe, took on human flesh. He is also a man. He is fully human. And this too is, abs- is an absolute essential core to our Christian faith. The apostle John said in First John chapter 4, verses 2 to 3, he said this, by this you know the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. In other words, he, he, he's a human being. God took on flesh. He didn't fake it. He didn't cheat. He didn't pretend to be a human being. He actually took on flesh. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus came into flesh, that he is a human being, is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God, this is the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard was coming, and now is in the world already. So John, I mean, the fact that Jesus is a human, that he's fully God and fully human, this is a pillar in his identity. The fact that he is human, John says, if someone denies that he's fully human, someone says he's just faking it, or he was just part human, or he was halfway between human and God, no. If someone denies that he was fully human, it's not just, oh, they're good Christians, but we don't fully agree on everything. No, no, that's spirit of the Antichrist. I think I would have gotten along well with John. I love the way he just calls it out the way it is. He says, that's the spirit of the Antichrist. You deny Jesus is fully human, spirit of the Antichrist. And so we have these two pillars to Jesus' identity. We looked in John chapter 8 a few weeks ago, how Jesus said, unless you believe I am, unless you believe I am Yahweh, you will die in your sins. And we have a second pillar here. Unless you believe that Jesus is also fully human, you will also die in your sins. And so in this message today, I want to talk about the characteristics of Jesus' humanness, his humanity. As I want to drive it into your brain that Jesus didn't cheat, he didn't pretend to be God, or I mean, he didn't pretend to be human, he was fully human without losing his godness. And the the amazing thing about it is, there are some tremendous blessings and benefits there are, there's a tremendous inheritance for us as believers because Jesus became human. And I'm going to, some of them are obvious. For example, the forgiveness of sins, He had to become human in order to die on the cross. That one's obvious. There's another one I'm going to spend a lot of time on at the end of this message that many of us Christians miss. And it is, it is our hope for eternity and it is completely tied up in the fact that Jesus became 100% human. But I'm going to work, so that's the message. That's the roadmap today. We're going to work through his characteristics as a human. We're going to end with what does that mean for us and the hope we have as a result of that. Amen? Bow your heads with me, close your eyes, and let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. We don't love you enough. Our love is weak. It's inconsistent often, but we're, but we're growing. We want to love you more, Jesus. And I pray that this message, this series, and this message, Jesus, it I pray that we would love you more. I pray that you would open up the eyes of our heart to see how awesome you are, to worship you, to know you, to walk with you. Lord Jesus, I know we have people here today. We've got people here who have been Christians all their lives and have never walked with you or loved you. Lord Jesus, I pray that the scales would fall from our eyes, that we would leave that dry religion and that we would know you. In your name we pray, amen. So I want to talk about four characteristics of the human experience of Jesus. He did not fake it. He did not cheat. And the first characteristic of Jesus' humanity, the fact that he, and he didn't lose his godness as we've talked about. He never became less God. But in addition to being God, he added in this part about being human. And the first thing you have to realize is that the characteristic of his humanity is that he had to grow up mind, soul, and body. Okay? Now th- and again, this is fascinating. Um, God took on human flesh, and he so took it on, that he, had, he went through all the stages of human life. He had to grow up, mind, soul, and body. He went through all the stages. He didn't just come down as a man, and here I am. He went through the whole process of being human. He was conceived. Yahweh, the creator of the universe, was conceived as a single cell, a single living cell in the womb of a teenage girl named Mary. And then he did. I mean, think about this. It's mind-blowing. The one who sustains all things by the word of his power. The one who keeps the universe together became a single cell in the the womb of a teenage girl, went through nine months, all the stages, developing a head and fingers and feet and all of that. The God of the universe, the creator, was attached to this teenage girl by an umbilical cord completely dependent on her for nourishment. He did the whole human experience. He humbled himself that Far. And by the way, this tells us something very profound about God. And we should all spend time this Christmas thinking about it. Don't just skim over it. We, we Christians, we skim over the Christ- Christmas story. I would challenge you this Christmas to spend time, set aside time, have, have a few devotion times where you just think about this truth. That Yahweh, the God of the universe went into a womb and became dependent. Yahweh, the one, we'd all depend on him for life and, and breath and everything, it says in several places in the Bible. And he came down and he was dependent on his mother and father. They had to burp him. They had to change his diapers. I know they didn't have diapers, but they had to wipe his bum. And they had to take care of him. He went through all that. He went through all the stages of growing up. He was a toddler. He was a five-year-old. He even went through the teenage awkward stage, the peach fuzz stage. Jesus did all of that. He had to grow up. He didn't just come down. I mean, think of the humbling. That tells us something really profound about the heart of the God we serve. That he would be king of the universe, and he would go down and be a fetus in a womb, and he would grow up, and he would go through the teenage stage, and he would grow up. Luke chapter 2, verses 40 and 52. Profound little passage here. And a child, speaking of Jesus, grew and became strong filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And Jesus, look, now this this part gets me. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature. He didn't just increase in stature. He didn't just grow up in his physical body, his mind too. He increased in wisdom. He had to learn things. I mean, that that should stun us. The all-knowing God of the universe. So took on, so lowered and humbled himself into the human experience that he even had to learn things. He had to increase in wisdom. I mean, he had to go, think about this, he had to learn to read. The God of the universe had to learn to read. He had to learn math. He had to learn geography. He had to learn all the things that kids in his day had to learn, and he learned them from people he made. He knit these people together in their mother's wombs, and then he said, okay, this one's going to be my teacher. Then he went into a womb and grew up, and they taught him. Now, of course, there's one thing I want to deal with here right away, because there's a tension here. I'm going to get a whole bunch of emails. And, uh, and, and that's good, because I've been telling you Jesus is God, and some of you are going to go, if Jesus is God and he knows everything, how can he learn something? How can he increase in wisdom, right? And, and here we're starting to bump into a little bit of a tension here, the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully man, and, and we need to humbly admit that this is always going to be a bit of a mystery to us. But I want to show you a couple passages because I don't want you thinking from this verse now. So you're going to go, oh, so Jesus didn't know everything. And there's a bunch of passages in the New Testament you're going to come across where Jesus clearly knows everything. I want to show you this and then I want to kind of try and bring it together for you. But there's always going to be a bit of mystery here. So I want to be humble as I do this. Okay? But clearly the Bible also at the same time does affirm that Jesus knows everything because he's God. Okay? John chapter 16. I love this passage. John chapter 16. Jesus is with his his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he's going to be crucified. And he's teaching them. And while he's teaching them, something suddenly, finally clicks for these guys. I just love it that it takes them a long time. It takes me a long time for everything too. And I just, something clicks for them and they finally go, oh, I mean, he's just about to die. And they go, oh, we know who you are. And he's going, come on, three and a half years later, wow. But then they say something else, really fascinating. They say something about what he knows. Because of who he is, something about what he knows. And it's very fascinating. Uh, His disciples said, so John 16, verse 29. Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Okay? I wonder if some of you ever feel like that when you're doing listening prayer and you're seeking God for guidance. Would you just make it clear, right? And there's something there about God do, working with our hearts that he, does, he likes to make it, his voices quiet. He's growing us, right? But anyway, now you're finally speaking clearly, they say. And now, now this next statement, look what they say next. They're looking at Jesus. They're looking at a man, the man they've been following for three and a half years. And they say to this man, they're looking at, now we know that you know all things. Now that is a stunning statement. Can you imagine standing next to a person who knows all things? Can you imagine standing next to a person that knows everything? He doesn't just know all the little facts about the universe, but he knows what you're thinking right now. Can you imagine standing next to a person who knows all things? He knows every shameful thing you've ever done in your life. He knows, he sees it all. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're going to do next. He knows when you're going to die. Can you imagine standing next to a person who knows all things? And the disciples they, they look at him, and it, you know, and they still, even at this point, don't fully know who he is. That won't happen until after the resurrection, but their eyes are slowly being opened. And they say, now we know who you are, and we know that you know all things. So he knows everything. And a week, about a week later, I want to show you one other verse here. I could show you many, many, but about a week later, uh, this is after the resurrection now, and the disciples have gone, they're fishing. And then we have this famous scene in uh, John chapter 21, where Jesus calls them over and he has this conversation with Peter where he says, do you love me three times, right? And it, at the end of this conversation, Peter says something again, it's just amazing, and he affirms again that Jesus knows all things. And uh, I'll just, we'll just pick up at the end of this conversation, he, Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, so now again, so he's looking at Jesus, and he says, Lord, you know everything you know everything. And he says, you even know my heart. You know that I love you. You know how much and how little I love you. You know everything. Okay, again, this is, this is who Jesus is. He's Yahweh. Of course he knows everything. And I can show you many, many other passages where Jesus shows explicit, detailed knowledge of the future and things that are going on even when, even when he's not around. He knows everything. So now the question is, so now we have this tension, and yet we have Luke chapter 2, Jesus Jesus grew in wisdom. He increased in wisdom. He learned things, and yet we have this tension. He knows everything because he's God. Okay? And again, there's always going to be some mystery here, and there's this tension runs right through the Gospels. He's fully God, fully man. But how do we bring these things together? I don't know if we can fully ever know it, but I think Philippians 2 again. Remember two weeks ago, I, I preached on Philippians 2. And we talk about the fact that... that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. And we talked about the fact that in, right throughout the Gospels, Jesus never uses his divine powers for himself. He won't turn a, a stone into a piece of bread to feed himself, but he'll turn five loaves and two fishes into enough food for thousands. And I think Philippians 2, I think what we have here is another example of, of Yahweh humbling himself to this level, and he, and he somehow, he says, I'm not going to use my divine all-knowingness. Somehow he, he, he doesn't allow himself to benefit from that. He shuts himself off from that when it comes to his own learning and his own growing up. And he legitimately, authentically went through all the growing up experiences that we go through as children of learning and all that stuff. And again, that tells us something really profound about the God we serve. Majestic, powerful, glorious, holy, and yet humble and meek. And he rejoices to come near to us as human beings. He so rejoices in us human beings that he puts himself and goes as a, you know, right in the womb and goes through all the stages and lives out life the way we do it. Amazing, 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 amazing. Anyway, so he had to grow up mind, soul, and body. Uh, second thing I want to talk about characteristics of Jesus' humanness is he had an ordinary body and he led an ordinary life for the first 30 years of his life. And I've got the 30 years part there because obviously during the last three years of his life when he was doing ministry, I don't think any of us would call that ordinary, okay? But the first 30 years of his life, he lived an ordinary life in a very ordinary body. And that should tell us something about God too. Isaiah 53 verse 2, Isaiah prophesied ahead and he makes a prophecy uh, hundreds of years in advance about Jesus. And this is what he says about Jesus. For he grew up before him like a young plant And like a root out of dry ground, speaking of Jesus, and now look at what he says about him. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Think about that. I mean, if if any one of us were God, and obviously that's impossible, but just a little thought experiment, right? But if any of us were God and had his power, I don't think any of us with the character we have would come down as low as to live in a human body like Jesus did. But if we did, what kind of a human body would you give yourself if you were in charge, right? Most of us would come down and we'd be a king or a queen and we'd be really handsome. You know, we'd have this body that would just you know, really stick out and everyone, because, that, we, because we want people to, to, to think about it. We want to be lifted up. We want to be all these sorts of things. Yahweh, the God of the universe, took on a body that had no form. Or majesty or beauty that we should desire him. He just took up an ordinary body. Got born as a poor, into a poor family in a manger and took on an ordinary body. And that should tell us something profound about his heart. And it also tells us something profound about what God thinks about ordinary. He loves ordinary. He loves ordinary. And he has a heart in all of his glory and holiness. He has a heart that is humble and gentle and loving. And not only did he go into an ordinary body, but he lived an ordinary life. He lived a very ordinary human life for 30 years. And you say, well, how do you know that? Because the Bible doesn't talk much about his life. And there are all kinds of crazy, you know, there... Outside of the you know, in the Bible, we've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are the four Gospels. And then outside of the Bible, we have these other books that are called Gospels. There's the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Judas. And, and, and often people, skeptics say that we Christians just kind of picked the four we wanted, and we left out the other ones that are just as legitimate. If you read those other Gospels about Jesus, they write all kinds of crazy stuff Jesus did when he was a kid. Like one of them, I think it's the Gospel of Thomas, has this one story where Jesus is 10 years old and he's doing miracles with sparrows on the beach and and just strange stuff, okay? And they say, why don't you Christians include those stories in the Bible? And one of the reasons is this right here. Jesus was not doing crazy miracles when he was 10 years old. He lived an ordinary human life and this is really important. I'm going to show it to you now in in Matthew. I got it wrong. All message last night. Matthew chapter 13 Uh, This is is a great passage, and we have to let it hit us full force. Matthew 13, Jesus has just started his public ministry. Just started his public ministry. He has just been baptized by by John the Baptist in the Jordan, and he's starting to go all around the country of of Israel there, and he's doing miracles, and he's preaching, and huge crowds are following him. And then in Matthew 13, he goes back to his hometown Nazareth. And Nazareth is where he grew up. He was born in Bethlehem. Then they ran away to Egypt for a few years. And then somewhere, I think he's five or six, I can't remember exactly, but somewhere when he's a young child, they settle in Nazareth. And from that age, you know, five or six, all the way until he's 30 years old, he lives in this little town of Nazareth. And now he starts his public ministry. He comes back to Nazareth. Nazareth is where everybody knows him. Everybody knows him. These are his His family, his brothers, his sisters, his nieces, his nephews and cousins and neighbors. These are the people he worked with. He worked in a a carpenter shop. These were his customers. This is a small little town, Nazareth, and they all know him really well. And he comes back to Nazareth, and he starts doing miracles and preaching messages to them, and their reaction to him tells us a lot about his life lived with them up until he was 30 years old do I want to read this to you now, okay? Because you would think that they would welcome him back. Hey, we knew he was always going to be something big. I mean, he's been doing these miracles for years already. Finally, everybody else is going to know about it. You'd think they would, they'd react like that. That's not at all how they react. Okay? Here's how they react. Let's read it here. Matthew 13, starting in verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, speaking of Nazareth, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get his, this wisdom and these mighty works? So, where did this, they're astonished. Okay, so he preaches powerfully. He comes, I mean, he is the capital T teacher. He is Yahweh. So he teaches and preaches, and they're astonished. He does mighty works. So they say, mighty works. He's doing miracles. And they're astonished. Wow! You know, and, but now I, wanna, I want you to see how they respond to this now. Okay? Next verse. They go, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary, and are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, and are not all his sisters with that, with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. So they weren't expecting this, were they? 30, you know, 25 years or however much, most of his life up to 30, he lived. These are the people who know him the best. These are the people who ate with him, and he was friends with them, and he went to school with them, and he worked with them. And these are the people who know him, who have seen him in everyday life. And when he comes back after his public ministry starts and does miracles among them and preaches among them, they they don't go, oh, we were expecting that all along. They say, who is this? Is not this just the son of, of Mary? And we know his brothers and sisters. We know this guy. Who does he think he is? Now, that tells us something profound about Jesus' life during those first 30 years, doesn't it? It tells us that Jesus didn't cheat. He wasn't, you know, making things easy for himself. And whenever he had a test, hee hee, I know all these answers, and writing them all down. He wasn't cooking his breakfast, looking around, snapping his fingers, and there it's all done. He wasn't doing miracles. He wasn't cheating. He was living a very ordinary human life. So ordinary that the people in his town, again, think of how low Yahweh came. He comes to earth. He doesn't skip straight to the ministry. He doesn't come down and go straight to the important stuff. He does 30 full years of normal, regular human life. And he lives that and of course, without sin, I'm going to talk about that in the last point, this message. Of course, it was without sin and everything he did. He never sinned. He never did anything wrong. But he was so ordinary and so regular that nobody, the people in his town weren't going, I bet you he's going to be something special someday. I bet you he's going to be a mighty prophet someday. They weren't expecting it. I bet you he's the Messiah that's promised. Nobody was thinking that. Except for, you know, his mother Mary and, and some stuff because of the angel when he was born and all that sort of thing. But other than that. That tells us something about ordinary life. That tells us something about how far God humbled himself, does it not? And he worked in a carpenter shop. I want you to think about this. I, I actually don't have time for this, but who cares? It's the last message, so I'm just going to do it anyway. Um, <laughs> he worked in a carpenter's shop. I want you to think about this. In Jewish culture, he will have started with his dad, apprenticing there in a carpenter shop, you know, somewhere when he's around 12 or 13. Okay? This is Yahweh. He doesn't come down and just go straight to the ministry. He goes into the carpenter shop and he puts in 17 or 18 years of hard work with his hands. That should just blow our minds. I mean, have you ever thought, I wonder what the angels thought. Millions of them wait on Yahweh at his throne, hand and foot, day and night all the time. Then Yahweh takes on flesh and they watch him going into a carpenter shop to work hard. And I wonder if some of them were going crazy saying, don't do it. Let me do that for you. Please don't humble yourself that far. And he goes in and he works in a carpenter shop and he learns a trade and he works for a living. And I just think, you know, there there is just so much there. I think I, I see so many young people today and they're trying to avoid work. They're trying to avoid work, and you talk to them, you know, why, why don't you have a job? Why aren't you working hard? Well, I, I'm praying, I'm waiting for the right job to come my way. I want you to think about that. Do you think being a carpenter was the right job for the king of the universe? He was sitting on his throne going, hmm, I wonder what would be the right job for my unique talents and passions, hmm. <laughs> I know, I'll be a carpenter, No! If Yahweh can humble himself that far, there should be no job that is beneath a Christian, someone who says he's a Christ follower. There should be no job below us. And so it's not bad to want a job that, you know, that fits your unique passions and talents and abilities. But the point is, you don't have to wait on God. There's this, we over-spiritualize things. I'm going to wait on God until I get this perfect job. No, 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 no. You follow God. That means you work. Just work hard. Get a job. Be consistent, be dependable, work hard, and then pray while you're working hard, is there another job that would fit my talents and abilities better? But that's what Yahweh did. He humbled himself, and he worked for 17 or 18 years. He didn't just skip straight to ministry. It's not, I'm going to do ministry instead of work. I think, I think one of the best things For a young person, if you're a young person here today, one of the best things you say, I want to love Jesus more. I want to know Jesus more. And so you're going to the prayer room and you're fasting and you're leading a cell and you're doing all sorts of stuff. Keep doing all that stuff. It is hugely important. Keep going to the prayer room. Keep fasting. Keep praying. Keep being in the Word of God. That's important. But there's something I want to add for you too. Get a job. Get a job. Work hard because you'll be walking with Jesus when you do because he says, I know exactly what that's like. Amen. I'm just going to say amen to myself on that one, and we're just going to keep going. That was a bit of a rabbit trail. I lost three minutes. (laughs) Good. Okay. Okay. Now, some of you are parents, and you're jabbing your kid. And make them pay rent, okay? Next one, okay, oh, I've totally lost myself now. Change of paper. Oh, yeah, we need to change our picture of Jesus. Okay, this whole idea, we have a wrong picture of Jesus. We need to think about this, okay? God became, he lived an ordinary human life for 30 years. And we have a messed up picture of Jesus. And we think because he didn't sin, that, makes, that means he was weird. Now, we would never say that. We would never say to our kids, you know, I think since Jesus didn't sin, that he was weird. We would never say that, but you can see it in all the pictures in our children's Bibles. Because whenever we see a picture of Jesus, this is what we see. We see this, this, uh, this white guy. He maybe looks a little bit like me, a little more morose, very long face. And he's always looking off into heaven like this. And we think, you know, we don't ever imagine Jesus skinning his knee or getting a sliver or breaking something by accident in the house because he's roughhousing with his younger brothers. We don't imagine him pulling a prank. We don't imagine him running off to go fishing with his friends. We don't imagine him laughing or things like that. We don't imagine him being normal because we think he didn't sin. He couldn't have been normal. And so we just always picture him like this. <laughs> and he's white. And that's a whole other thing I want to get into. He's Jewish, by the way. He's dark-skinned. But... Uh, I'm not going to go down this rabbit trail now right now. I'm going to leave that one. (laughs) (laughs) But he's normal, okay? He lived an ordinary human life. He was not just going through life looking off into heaven with his hands out like this. He was working hard. He did everything a regular boy would do except sin. And the fact that he didn't sin didn't make him less human, didn't make his experience of humanity less full. It made it more full. We have this idea. It's not sin that makes our lives full. Sin makes it emptier. Jesus did not experience less of the human experience because he didn't sin. He experienced the human experience more fully because he didn't have sin because God never made us to sin. Sin is a minus to life, not a plus. And so when you think about Jesus and the fact that he didn't sin, stop picturing Jesus as weird. He was very, very ordinary. 30 years of his life, he lived the human experience. All right, third thing now, and I will have to just skip over this now because I want to get to the sinlessness part. But I, I, I do want to put this, those of you who are taking notes, it's just a good thing to remember. Uh, in, in characteristics of his human experiences, he experienced physical need. You know, tiredness, hunger, pain. I could show you many, many verses in the, in the Gospels. And, and, and all of these are verses we could be really thinking about and meditating on. I mean, Isaiah 40, verse 31 says that Yahweh never, never gets faint or tired or weary. And then in the Gospels, we see Yahweh in the flesh. And he, he gets tired after a long walk. And he's dusty and he's hungry and he's thirsty. That should, that should make our hearts say, I love you, Jesus. Wow. I love you, Jesus. I love that you would do that. That you would identify with me at that level. That you would even experience physical need. That Yahweh, who has never been tired and never been hungry and never thirsty, that he would take on human flesh and he would would experience all of those things. That's amazing. But here's the last one. This is the last point. This is the one I want to finish this message on. This is the one I want to finish this series on. Because there's so much hope that comes out of this one. And and this last trait, so far in this message, I've been showing you how Jesus had, he he shared much in common with us. In his humanness, he he went through many of the things that we go through. In this last trait, we find something in his humanness that is totally different than than anything we experience. And that is, the fourth trait here is that he was completely sinless. He was completely sinless. In his humanness, he never once, ever, did or said or thought anything wrong think about that. Think about that. He never once did or said or thought anything wrong. He never had to go back and apologize to someone because he'd he'd wronged them. I mean, he might have had to apologize because you know, he accidentally hurt someone, you know, whatever, you know, working or, or wrestling or whatever. I'm not saying he, he never had to say sorry like that. But as far as a sin is concerned, he never once had to go back and apologize or confess something. He never once had to feel convicted of a sin because he never once did anything wrong. And I really love that about Jesus. And one of my favorite lines in, in, in the Gospels, one of my favorite lines, it comes from John chapter 8. And I'm going to show it to you in just a second, but in, in John chapter 8, here's, the, here's the, the, what's happening. The, the setting is the Pharisees and the Sadducees are, are, have gathered around Jesus, a big crowd of them, and they're very hostile, and they're questioning him, and they're trying to find something wrong for him. They're trying to get him to trip up. They're trying to make him make, get him to make a mistake because they want nothing more than his downfall. They would love to find one thing they could use against him to bring about his downfall. And so they're hostile, and they're around him, and they're peppering him with questions. And then Jesus gives them the ultimate beatdown. It is one of the boldest, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the boldest challenges you could ever put out to a crowd of your enemies. And so here they are all gathered around him, and they're peppering him, and they're going after him, they're trying to find something wrong with him, and then he says this one thing, and it is one of the most audacious things any human being could ever put out there. He says this to all of them, the people who hate him, a big group of them. He says, which of you can accuse me of sin? Which of you? I mean, think about that. Think about how brave you would have to be to say that. I mean, which of us could stand up in front of a whole bunch of people who are looking for our downfall? I mean, I think of, you know, how political campaigns are run these days and how the moment someone wants to run for office, there's a whole industry of people that are going to, going to go to work trying to find dirt on them. So you run for public office now, and and we're all human. So we've all done stuff in our past, and they're going to bring it out. They're going to bring your dirty laundry and put it out on the TV and on the commercials and everywhere and in the newspapers how you once said this and you once did this and you once were that or whatever, and they're going to find the dirt on you because we all have dirt. But Jesus stands in front of a big crowd of his enemies And he gives them the boldest dare you could ever throw out there. He says, which of you can accuse me of sin? Which of you can find even one time in my life where I've said a half truth and not the whole truth? Which of you can find even one woman I've ever looked at lustfully? Which of you can find even one conversation in my whole entire life where after the conversation I went away and said, oh, I wish I wouldn't have said that. Which of you can find even one instance of gossip, one instance of cheating, one instance of slight, you know, gray integrity? Which of you can accuse me of any sin? Can you imagine what it would feel like to be able to say that? Can you imagine? Can you imagine what it would feel like to be able to stand up in front of a big crowd of people and say, you can look at my whole entire life. I don't have one thing that I'd be ashamed of to bring up here on this stage in front of you all right now. Can you imagine being able to say that? I don't have one thing in my whole entire life to be embarrassed about or that I would have to hide. I've never had to go and confess to someone. I've never done one thing wrong to feel bad about. Can you imagine how that would feel? It would be heaven. It would be absolute heaven. But you know what? It gets better than this yet. It's the quality of Jesus' sinlessness that really, it's not only that he never did anything wrong. It's it's not only that he just never sinned or never lusted or never lied. The quality of his his sinlessness is even better than that. It's that he never even wanted to do anything like that. It's not like, it's not like Jesus' sinlessness. He got through his whole life without technically doing anything wrong, but there were many times when he had a cold sweat and he's like, Oh, I would really, oh, I would like to lie right now. I'd really like to curse. You know, I just hit my thumb with a hammer. I'd really like to let loose with one right now, but I won't. I'd, I'm really, really tempted to lust, but I'm going to hang on because I'm God and I better not sin. That is not the quality of of sinlessness that Jesus had. That's not the quality. Jesus' sinlessness was of a purity of mind and heart. See, the divine nature, the divine nature was joined. It says in Matthew 1.20, Jesus was not conceived by a a man and a woman coming together. We're all all conceived by by a, a man and a woman coming together. And so we're all born with a sin nature. Isn't that true? Every one of us is born, and we get it from Adam. Paul, Paul develops that in Romans 5 and, and other places in his epistles, that all of us are descendants of Adam, and so we all get this sin nature from Adam, and that's why babies will, will sin before they even hardly know how to think. I mean, before a baby, those of you who have had babies, and I've seen some first-timers here uh, today, and, and they're still too small that you haven't seen the sin yet, but it's coming, Okay? I'm promising you it's coming, but uh, before they can even talk or walk, they know how to rebel, they know how to be stubborn, they know how to be selfish. You don't have to teach them. You don't have to teach them how to lie. Nobody has a family devo session where they go through, okay kids, you need to learn how to lie because, hey, this is human life, and then now you know how to lie. They just do it. They just, they know how to be selfish. We all get it naturally. We can't even conceive of a life where we didn't have that kind of corruption in our hearts. Jesus was not in his, he was fully human, but in that part of his experience, he was never like that because he was not conceived of a man or, or and of a woman. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb. The virgin birth, very important. He never had a sin nature. The divine nature took on flesh, not the sin nature. And so in everything Jesus did, he was pure because the thing is, God can't want to do evil. I want to show you this in James chapter 1, James chapter 1 says this about God, James chapter 1, 13 to 15, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God, look at this, cannot be tempted with evil. He can't, it's impossible. God cannot be tempted with evil. It's, it's impossible. And, and the reason it's impossible is because that's by definition of who God is. I mean, what is sin? Sin is doing something God doesn't want you to do. Isn't that true? Like, the reason murder is sin is because God hates murder. That's not part of his character. So that murder is a sin because God doesn't like it. It's not part part of how he wants things run. Adultery is a sin because God doesn't like it. That's what sin is. Sin is doing what God doesn't want you to do. That's sin. So by definition, how could God ever want to do something he doesn't want to do? Are you following me there? How could God want to do something he doesn't want to do? God could never want to do something he hates, and that's why God can never be tempted by evil. He is goodness personified, so he can't be tempted. God could never have a bad day and be like, oh, I I actually kind of wanted to lust today. It's impossible. Lust is a sin because he hates it, and so God cannot be tempted with evil. Well, God took on flesh. That's Jesus. The divine nature took on flesh. And so at no point in Jesus' life did he have a back and forth with, oh, I'd really like to sin. Not a chance. His sinlessness was at a whole new level. He could not be tempted with evil. James says this is where evil comes from, and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Temptation comes from the evil desires we have inside of us. From our sin nature. The evil desire, and then desire when it's conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it's fully grown brings forth death. Now, there's one more verse. I have two more passages now in this series. We're going to go, I want to hit this verse, and then, I, and then we're going to finish with 1 Corinthians 15, 45, which is just awesome. But I know some of you, some of you are thinking, you're going, what about Hebrews 4:15? right? Some of you are thinking that right now, and some of you are going, oh yeah, good thing you brought that up, because now I am thinking about it. But Hebrews 4:15 says that Jesus was tempted in every way, just like we are, Okay? And, and it does say that. I'm going to go I'm going to show it to you right now. Hebrews 4.15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So, now we have a problem, right? James 1 says God can't even be tempted to do evil. And evil only comes from our sin nature. We know that Jesus is God, and we know that Jesus, because of the virgin birth, doesn't have a sin nature. So, we know all these things. Jesus is God. God can't be tempted with evil. How can Jesus be tempted by sin? Now we have Hebrews, though, and we have to keep all these because all of this is the word of God. How can Hebrews say that Jesus was tempted in every way like we are? Well, the answer to this problem is actually very simple. It's very, very simple. The fact of the matter is we all know this, and we we use the word temptation for two, two different things. And we all, we seamlessly operate in these two things when we talk about temptation. One thing we talk about when we talk about temptation is we talk about something I really want to do on the inside that's bad. So for example, a person might say, I was really tempted to cheat on my taxes, but I didn't do it. And what they mean by by that statement is, I really wanted to, I wanted to do it and I knew it was wrong, but my desires want to cheat. I wanted to cheat on my taxes and lie on my taxes. That's one way we talk about temptation, right? It's something I want to do on the inside. Or, you know, a man is in a hotel by himself, and he's flicking through, you know, he's on the road for whatever reason, for work or whatever. He's flicking through the channels. He comes across a dirty movie, and he says later to his small group, he says, I was really tempted to watch a dirty movie. What what, what is he saying? He's saying, I really wanted to. By self-control, I managed not to, but I have evil desires. I have perverse desires inside of me. I wanted to do it. And so we use the word temptation to talk about the evil desires that are inside of us that we want to do bad things, okay? But there's another thing we use the word temptation for, and that is to talk about something or someone from the outside trying to get me to do something wrong. We also call that temptation. So if the devil tries to get me to do something wrong or if some friends at school try to get me to do something wrong or circumstance or whatever trying to get me to do something wrong, we also call that temptation, but that's a different thing altogether, isn't it? For example... Uh story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife in the Old Testament is a great example of this. Uh, Joseph, Potiphar's gone, and Joseph's in the house. Potiphar's wife comes to him and says, sleep with me. Okay, so this is not now an example of something inside that Joseph was desiring. It's a person from the outside trying to tempt Joseph to do something wrong. And what does Joseph do? He just turns and runs. Okay? So that they're both temptation. Can we use that word either for something that's on the inside that I really want to do, or it refers to outside pressure to do something wrong. Does that make sense? Okay. Now let's look at this, Hebrews 4.15. Do you think that the writer of Hebrews is saying that Jesus was tempted in every way like we are? That means he had all the same evil desires in his heart that we have. He had a corrupt, dirty heart, and every morning he got up and, and some of the most perverted people and lustful people that are out there in society today, he was tempted just like them, in a sense that he had their wicked desires inside of him, and every day he had this turmoil of evil desires, and he just managed to suppress it by self-control. Not a chance. The writer of Hebrews is not here saying that Jesus had a whole bag full of evil desires in his heart, corruption and perversity like what we human beings have in our sin nature. What he's saying is that Yahweh took on flesh and he went through all the same external pressures we do. He was tired like we get tired. He was hungry like we get hungry. He was rejected like we get rejected. People called him names. They lied about him. They insulted him. They persecuted him. They killed him. He was exposed to every outward opportunity for lust that the human beings of his day were exposed to. He was exposed to every outward opportunity for gossip and lying that every other human being gets exposed to. But in all of these things, he was like when you put gold into a fire and it comes out after the testing, it's still gold. It's solid gold. He came out solid gold because that's what he is. He took all of the external testing that we get and he showed his true colors. And by the way, this is our hope for eternity if Jesus only overcame sin by self-control, what kind of a hope is that for us? Because that means for the rest of eternity, we are only going to manage our sin by self-control as well. You say, oh, but we won't want to sin in heaven. There won't be, heaven's a perfect place, so we won't have to worry about wanting to sin. Lucifer was in heaven when he sinned. Did you ever think about that? Lucifer was in the same heaven we're gonna be in when it comes down to earth. And he sinned. That should depress some of you if you don't get the rest of this message. Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden and it was perfect and they sinned. Our hope for eternity is not that we're gonna be like Adam and Eve and Lucifer in a perfect place and somehow we won't sin. They sinned in perfect places. Our hope for eternity is that we are somehow going to be fundamentally different on the inside. We won't ever want to sin ever again. Our hope for eternity is that we will be somehow different. We are going to a perfect place and that's going to be amazing. But that we are going to be different somehow than Lucifer and Adam and Eve. And that is our hope and that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And this is why it's so important that Jesus didn't have evil desires inside of him. Our hope is that we are going to be transformed into his likeness. And he couldn't sin because God, can't be, God cannot be tempted with evil because he's so pure. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to finish this series now with this passage. It is an awesome passage. 1 Corinthians 15 starting in verse 45. This is our hope and it's based on the fact that Jesus was fully human. And yet without sin, without even the desire for sin. Verse 45, thus it is written... The first Adam became a living being. The last Adam, and remember that, I'm going to come back to it, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those uh, are, are, of the du- are those who are of the dust, right? So the people who are, who are in Adam's descendants, his family, they're like him. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now, some of this is typical, kind of cryptic, symbolic, Paul talking, okay? And so many of us have read these passages many times before, and we just kind of skim over them. The last Adam, the first Adam, the man of the dust, the man of heaven, and we don't really get what's going on, okay? So I'm going to explain this passage to you. This passage is awesome, And in this passage, Paul is comparing two men, Adam and Jesus, okay? And in the passage, he gives Jesus two titles. He calls him the last Adam, and he calls him the second man, okay? Now, I'm going to show you what both those mean, and then we're going to look at how Paul is relating him to the first Adam and what this means for us, for the future, okay? He calls Jesus the second man. Now, what does this mean, the second man? Okay? He's not saying that Jesus was the second male individual to come along after Adam. Obviously not. There were millions of men who lived between Adam and Jesus. So it's not talking about Jesus as the second male individual. Okay? What he's talking about here is, okay. he's talking about the virgin birth. And the point is, Adam and Eve had babies, and then they had babies and babies and babies and babies. Eventually the whole earth was filled with human beings, and we're all related to Adam, okay? We're actually all related to each other. Don't think about that too much when you think about your spouse. But ultimately, we're all, I mean, it's, it's distant, okay? So that's okay. But we're all related to Adam. All of us are descended from Adam. Now, according to Paul's writings in this passage and other ones, he says here, right, as are those who, you know, as the man from the dust, right, so are those who are of the dust. So we all get our sin nature, as I said before, from Adam because we're all descended from him. So that's why we have this corruption. As a result of being related to Adam, we have corruption in our hearts, okay? Now, he calls Jesus the second man. Why is Jesus called the second man? He's not the second male individual. He's the second man because he's not related to Adam. Virgin birth, conceived in the womb of Mary, he's not descended from Adam. And so what Paul is saying is, here we almost have two creation events. In the beginning, God created Adam and Eve. And then then he creates Jesus in Mary's womb. And Jesus is a second man. What he's talking about, there is a second family or a second race. He's just as human as Adam, but he's a second family. He's not from Adam. He's a second family. He's from heaven. And so Jesus came to earth to start a new family. There's Adam's family. Don't laugh about that too much when you get it in a few seconds, okay? There's Adam's race, Adam's line, Adam's descendants. They all get corruption, we all get corruption from him. Jesus comes along. He's the second man. He's part of a new race. There's no corruption. There's, no, there's not even the ability to sin because he's so pure, so holy. He's the second man. Okay, now, Jesus also has another name, which is the last Adam. He's, got, he's somehow involved with both families. He's the second man. He's a new family. He's a new race. He's a new line of descendants. He's going to start it, and I'll get to that in just a moment. But he's also the last Adam. Somehow, he's the end of, of Adam's line. He's the end of Adam's line of descendants. Okay? So somehow, after Jesus' work is finished, there's not going to be any more people in Adam's race, in Adam's line. Does that make sense? He's the last Adam. When he's done, there's no more Adams. There's no more people with sinful nature. Okay? Really, really important. Okay? And that's where we're going. Now, I'm totally getting lost in my PowerPoint, and I apologize to you, Darlene. Okay? So he's putting an end. Okay, so now this explains to us the cross. Okay? This explains to us the cross. When Jesus came to earth to die for our sins, we have this idea like he came to give Adam's race life. Jesus did not come to give this old Adam's race life. He came to kill Adam's race and he came to start a new race. And you say, well, when is this going to start? What do you mean? He, okay, fine. Well, we still have sinful nature right now. and He died on the cross two thousand years ago. Well, when is, so when does it start? Okay, it's already started now, but you can't realize it all in this lifetime. Jesus came to kill Adam's race. So there's no more Adams, no more sinful nature, no more corruption. He came to start a new race that would be in his image, which he can't sin. He can't even want to sin because he's so pure. He came to... To take us from one family and put us in another. You say, well, when does it start? You can start right now. And, it, and, and you say, oh, good, because we're all Christians. No, false. Lots of Christians are still living in Adam's line. And I'll tell you why, because they're not walking with Jesus. Calling yourself a Christian and saying a prayer once, as we know, doesn't radically transform people's lives. But if you will start to spend time with Jesus and have a relationship with him, where you actually begin to hear him and you spend time in his word and you begin to obey him and you begin to to live for him and love him, the closer you get to him, you will already begin to experience this. He makes you into a new person. He doesn't just give you self-control, so now, oh, I'm much better at controlling my lustful passions. He starts to change your lustful passions. Is that not true? Over time as you walk, and it doesn't come by calling yourself a Christian. It comes by actually being with Jesus. But as you're with him, he actually begins to conform you into his image, and you begin to change. Now, that's not going to finish, though, in this lifetime. Our hope is at the resurrection. At the resurrection, we are all going to be reborn, those of us who follow Jesus till the end of our lives. Those of us who follow Jesus to the end of our lives, not just you just pray a prayer once, and then you live for yourself the rest of your life. No. But those of us who follow Jesus to the end of our lives at the resurrection will be reborn and we will be just as human as we've always been human, except it'll be better because we'll have a new dad and we'll have a new, we'll be in a new race. We'll be a new man, we'll be new women, we'll be new people, and we will be made in the image of Jesus. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Jesus never wanted to sin, and neither will you, once you're reborn, into his line. Is that not an awesome hope? You're going to be in the image of Jesus. No more are you going to be in the image of Adam. No more are you going to have perversity on the inside. And this is how we're different. This is how after the resurrection we're going to be different than Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, we're not in Jesus' image like this. This is how we're going to be different than Lucifer. We are going to be in our nature and character just like Jesus. That is wonderful. And I asked you before, can you imagine what it would feel like to have the feeling of being a person where you have nothing in your life to be ashamed of? You're going to have that feeling someday soon. If you will follow Jesus until the end. And so there are two groups of people we have here today. Now we're going to go to the baptism. But we have two groups of people here today. Some of you have never given your lives to Jesus. You have to give your life to him. You have to believe that he is God. That he is the only way of salvation. And you have to give your life to him. That's the first step. But most of you here today have been Christians. And many of you have been Christians all your lives. And you think just being a Christian does this for you. No. No. Today is the day that we need to make a commitment. These people are getting baptized here. Today is the day we need to make a commitment. I'm not living for myself anymore. I'm tired. Aren't you tired of living in Adam's line? Aren't you tired of the corruption and the perversity in your human heart and the deception and the wickedness and the apathy? I know I am. And you can start to live a new life. You can start to be transformed. But what it takes is, Jesus, I'm giving my life to you. My business is no longer mine. My time is no longer mine. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to follow your promptings. I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to spend time in your word every day. And I'm going to have a real relationship with you. That's what it, that's what it is. And then you become a new person, not just a self-controlled old person. So I want to just pray a prayer. I want you just to follow along with me. I want you just to repeat after me. Can you do that? I know, I know you're smart enough to do that. So I'm just going to say the short little statements. The baptism people can start coming up here. Uh, we're going to have announcements right after this in the offering. And, and the guys, you guys taking the offering, we're going to take the offering right after, after we pray. But I, I just want I'm going to say a little line. You just say it back to me. And I just want us all to commit our lives to Jesus. All right, let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I want to commit myself to you. I want to be in your word. I want to hear your voice. I want to give you everything in my life. Make me a brand new person. In Jesus' name, amen.